James, we had a great interview today with uh, with Jeff, don't you think? I mean, that was something yes. that I had never really uh, considered before, but it's a it's a it's a real stumbling block for a lot of ISOs and agents. Yeah, it is. You know, it's interesting. It's like anybody that's sold a lot of merchant accounts in the field, especially this idea mm-hmm. of instant onboarding of the merchant and you know really simplifying that process is like something you've been thinking about your whole life. You know, it right, seems like, right. because it's like, oh my goodness, if only this could be easier. So uh, I love what um, Under is doing and I love what Jeff's doing there as, uh, you know, really streamlining this. And then uh, tell us about the Insiders Report today. Well, we have an update on crypto. And, you know, I, 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 as we've said before, this is crypto payments at the point of sale are coming to a, to a merchant near you if they haven't already. And yeah. uh, I have some interesting insights that I, I share with everybody. Yeah, and I think over the next couple of years, the scary thing is, crypto acceptance is probably coming to your merchants. So, you know, are you going to be providing that to them or is another payment provider going to provide it? Don't worry. I'm sure they won't try to sell the merchant account as well. Right. (laughs) Watch out. Watch Um, out. And then in the uh, questions from the field, I talk about uh, just some really simple sales advice to kind of audit your prospecting approach and talking about how to get the merchant talking and really Mm -hmm. to present yourself uh, sincerely and to really get that best foot forward right at the beginning of the conversation. Um, This episode is uh, brought to you by Accept Blue. The website is accept.blue, accept.blue. It's a processor agnostic gateway uh, that is really focused on having streamlined pricing uh, without any percentage or per item fees to the ISO. So they have Mm -hmm. streamlined pricing and really a streamlined system. It's a simple system. It's white labeled. It's 100% built for ISOs and agents. So if you haven't checked it out already, definitely go to accept.blue dot blue and check it out it's a really interesting gateway to take a look at so you ready to go james let's start let's do it welcome to the merchant sales podcast hey everybody i'm here today with jeff shea and uh, patty and i are going to be talking to jeff today about instant merchant onboarding and this idea of kind of the underwriting process and these legacy systems that really need some updating so um jeff is the co-founder and CEO at Under.io. How are you doing today, Jeff? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Thanks for so being glad here. to have you. So Jeff, let's, before we dive into this really interesting topic, um, give us a little bit of your story. You know, this is such a crazy industry. We, Patty and I are always so interested to hear like, how did people get into this business? So how did you get into the payments industry? What was your journey to Under.io? And then maybe you could even give us a little context of why you co-founded this company and, and what it's all about. Sure, absolutely. Um, so my whole life, I've always been an entrepreneur, but I definitely didn't grow up with a background in payments. I feel like I kind of accidentally stepped into the space through just a you know a series of events that happened with some of my past businesses. Um, but I got started in payments about 16 years ago. Um, originally started as an agent, which is I think kind of the starting place of where a lot of people right. uh, get moving from the space. Um, we very quickly grew into an ISO and then a payment facilitator. This was back before that word existed. So I think we were called an aggregator at the time. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and we focused on a lot of vertically integrated software companies, business to business. And it really just kind of drove our need to innovate because we knew that we couldn't solve our customers' needs with what we had. So we had to create new solutions. So spent about 16 years running that business, had a really successful um, you know, engine as we built the business and then um, had an exit in 2017, which led to uh, starting under uh, what we're going to be talking about today. 
Awesome. Um, so, so let's dive a little bit into that. So of course, under is this idea of, you know, automating merchant onboarding and different things that you do, which we'll get into the details. But what I'm really curious about right now is when you look back at your own experience in the industry and you look around at kind of these legacy onboarding systems, the, the PDFs, the paper applications, you know, whatever, right. right? Um, when you look at that, Jeff, what are the pain points that you see for both agents and merchants that, you know, really prompted you to co-found under to try to solve some of these problems? Like, what are you seeing in the market that, that really you saw that that need that needed to be uh, addressed? Yeah, so related to what I was just talking about um, before, I mean, there's there's two sides of this puzzle, right? You have the merchants, which I guess we're talking about as the consumer. And then you have the ISOs or the processors or the agents who um, are the ones kind of acquiring those services. So from the merchant perspective, it's really a matter of time, right? It's very time consuming to fill out a financial services application. They're often very confusing. Um, It's not very clear. And then when you go through that process, there's then more time for underwriting and follow-up and pen management and all of this. So, you know, I think that's the biggest pain point I would think of as a merchant is they make a decision. They want to move forward quickly. They don't want to spend time to potentially end with a negative outcome. Um, on the on the acquiring side, uh, it, it's interesting because since I started in the industry and I know it was different, obviously well before then as well, these applications have just become more and more confusing. You know, we've kind of thought of it internally as this idea of additive underwriting. You know, as there's more fraud, there's more um, things put in place to offset that fraud. And this just pattern has continued for 30 years and there's never been any like reductive processes. So these apps have just gotten longer and more complicated and really messy and hard to deal with. So there's a bit of like learning that the ISOs have to go through. There's a lot of time on their side working through the process. Uh, and there's not a lot of interchangeability. Um, And I I just think as businesses are evolving, it just seems like uh, native banking and financial services are often the laggards and allowing those businesses to accelerate in the way that they want to. So, you know, we're really interested in trying to remove those uh, roadblocks. Actually, that's really interesting, Jeff, because it seems to me that, you know, in the 16 years you've been in this business, it's a a great uh, uh, perspective. Um, because in that period of time, you know, new competitors like Square and Stripe have come, you know, come onto the scene. And I'm wondering, you know, what the impact has been um, in terms of merchant expectations for, for onboarding as a result of these new competitors. Yeah, that's a great point. And without a doubt, Square and Stripe, but it's not just Square and Stripe, right? right? I feel sure. like it's the it's the demand economy in general that has absolutely changed merchant expectations, as well as the fact that we as a nation are simply more comfortable with computers. You know, it's our generation when I was a kid where you were warned not to buy things on the internet because it might not be secure. You didn't know who you're working with. Nowadays, I can't remember the last time I went to the store to buy Mm -hmm. something, right? There's been this, the whole mind shift. So, um, you know, I think another really great example um, people always come back to is Amazon, right? There's this transition of buying something on the internet, entering your address, your email, your credit card number, et cetera. It takes five minutes. So Amazon said, let's just eradicate that and make it take one second. 
And mm-hmm. by saving people five minutes, they've created this trans, you know, huge transition of customers buying there. And now that's the new expectation. If you go to a website to buy something and you're presented with this, you know, long form that you have to scroll on, you might abandon and go somewhere else. So long-winded answer, but I feel like that's where financial services have come. I feel like because of this, people now expect to get their bank accounts instantly. They expect to get their credit card accounts instantly, payroll accounts, insurance accounts, um, because there's good examples of how this can work in an efficient way. So then, you know, how is under uh, .io helping ISOs, you know, create a merchant experience that's similar similar to uh, these, these payfacts? So um, from my first point that I mentioned before, I think a lot of the vision of what we're doing stems from the demands of the type of customers that we used to work with in my previous company. Mm -hmm. So what we've decided to do is we built a technology platform that enables financial services companies and banks really to compete in this new landscape that we live in today. And um, we see this as there's essentially three fundamental layers uh, of what you need to do to be able to be into this space. The first is uh, what we call data collection, right? So how are you getting the information from your customer that is necessary in order to move forward with some type of a process? Um, and uh, with our platform, we've developed uh, online web forms and a variety of different mobile forms to allow people to kind of re- collect that information I could talk a little bit more about that as we go. Um, The next layer we call our synthesization layer, which is now that you have all this data from your customer, how do you make sense of it, right? How do you shrink the top of the funnel? How do you actually ultimately at the end of the day decide who of this pool of customers should be your customers, right? Those that fit your underwriting guidelines, those that are not fraudulent, those that truly apply for the services that you're looking for. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the third layer is our integration layer, right? So now you've uh, deduced who your customers are, you have all their information, and you want to do something with it. You want to open a payment processing account, you want to build their gateway, you want to get them a loan, you want to do something of that nature. So for us, it's about then taking that data, and then ideally APIing it to the location that it needs to go. Um, So those are the macro concepts of what we do in our platform. Uh, And like I said, I can dig in as we go today in a little more detail if it's helpful. Love it. Love it. So let me, let me see if I can just zoom out for one second here, you know, Jeff, cause I mean, I think for our audience, it might be beneficial for them to understand, you know, so as like a, an individual agent, let's say, right, let's, let's take that for a moment. So I'm an individual agent. I walk into a merchant location that I've had a conversation with and I get them to agree that yes, they want to sign up for a payment processing account with me. Right. So you know, the way I'm doing business today, I'm pulling out my tablet, maybe, and I have, you know, I'm pulling up uh, maybe DocuSign or some similar experience and filling out this long form with the merchant and, and all of that. So just if you could give us the 30 second visual here, how is my life different? How is my experience different as a sales agent if my company is using under? Yeah, I think the biggest um, point that I can comment on here is just the what we tried to do is to change the experience to what I think merchants are now expecting, right? So if you want to apply for something, anything on the internet, you're not expecting to get a 20 page PDF that you have to figure out how to fill out, right? right. You're expecting to land on a form to collect your information. Right. Mm -hmm. So the first thing we do is we give our our teams the ability to almost eradicate the documentation um, fundamentally 
uh, and to present their customers with something that's really simple to fill out. So they would present them with a link that they could access on their phone. They could put their tablet in front of them. They could fill it out on their tablet. But the merchant's now filling out a web form where it's asking really simple questions, your name, your address, your business information, you know, all the complex things. There's there's roughly from our count about 250 different endpoints on your average merchant processing app. And we've been able to reduce that to about 25 to 30 questions that by answering these questions ultimately can deduce what goes in those 250 endpoints. So the customers presented with a form that they fill out and then they can also use our integrations to kind of improve the process and further eradicate some of the things that they need. Um, behind the scenes, we still do all the magic. We still populate the PDFs and uh, all those logistics that need to happen. But now you're creating a much faster experience to get something completed and uh, ideally automating a lot of the back end things that would happen afterwards. Because then an agent would leave, go home, type this into an app. They would, or if they didn't already have it in an app, then they'd have to either email it or log into their onboarding system, type it into the onboarding system. There's still like multiple steps that happen after that appointment happens that adds time and delay to the process. Right. And, and what you're saying is under eliminates all of that because they fill out the forms on the spot potentially. And then by filling out the forms, that's going to then do all the back end stuff of creating the PDFs and, um, you know, populating all the necessary fields that are needed. Yeah. So yeah that's- just so I'm clear, it's like, so what you're asking on that web form are the basic data points that then will populate those forms. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's right. And I mean, we're flexible in the fact that it depends on what the use case is of the customer, but let's assume Mm -hmm. it's the standard use case. You need a PDF form filled out, you need a voided Mm -hmm. check, you need signatures, and you need to send it somewhere. Our system will automate all of that. We'll collect the data, we'll make that process simple and easy for the user. We'll then automatically create the PDF, automatically email it to the merchant, We'll then uh, collect the supporting documentation and we'll integrate it to the processor so that at the moment the customer signed, it's actually in underwriting, right? And there's no other steps that need to go along that process. Well, that's a perfect segue because what I want to talk about next is, you know, as you're coming into this as, you know, an innovative technology company that's streamlining this, and, and I think everyone on this podcast would agree that the end goal would be this like instant, you know, onboarding, right? So hopefully it's like, I sign them up <clears throat> we talk a little bit longer. And while we're talking, we get a notification that says their merchant account is live. You know, mm-hmm. that'd be great. You know, and obviously that's not going to happen for high risk not or even medium yet. risk, <laughs> but for low risk and things like that. And, and, you know, that is the experience that people are getting on square. That is the experience people are getting on Stripe. So um, my question though is, <clears throat> are there external barriers here? Meaning, you know, you integrate with FIS or Fiserv or Tesis or whatever. Mm-hmm. Well, their underwriting processes could potentially like slow this down. You know, how do you see this playing out? Do you see big players like that getting to the point where under could actually provide, you know, instant onboarding? Um, And just how are you working through that to like really improve the process, uh, you know, with these larger kind of legacy companies that are potentially slowing the process down for everybody? Sure. Yeah, really good point. And there's there's two sides to this, right? So there's automating manual processes, which I feel like we have end to end covered. Um, But then there's automating underwriting, right? Which is possibly bringing in other players. So if you're an ISO who rolls up to Fiserv and you're a retail ISO, you're not doing your own underwriting. um, You obviously can't 
automate someone else's underwriting process, or at least today right. you're at the mercy of their underwriting right. process. So our vision is that we'll be able to use our software to help create that solution for everyone. Um, but you have to keep in mind as a retail institution that you have to you know, guide by the underwriting policies of the processors that you're working with. Um, if you're a wholesale ISO, it, it's quite the opposite. We would help to dictate and create your underwriting policies. You know, At the end of the day, humans are just making decisions based on a plan of action. If you've seen underwriting guidelines, they're, they're relatively easy to follow, right? Mm -hmm. There's if-then statements and based on volumes and industries and you know, type of products and all of these things, there's all these different things that are required. So we believe we can automate that and truly create an instant onboarding solution. Um, and then we can make the process much more friendly for those that are retail that still have some loops that they have to jump through as they're working with their processors. Um, and I think it also depends on how you think of where, where you're managing risk, right? Because the big difference to me is when you're applying at one of the traditional processors, most of their friction is up front, right? We don't want to let a lot of people through the door. We only want to approve customers that should be with us, which is quite the opposite of what people think of with many payment facilitators like a Stripe or a WePay or something like that. They want to let as many people in the door as they possibly can. And then they want to use their algorithms and machine learning to weed out those that shouldn't have been there because it's more about the user experience than it is the, you know, uh, the post-approval risk management. So right. there's ways that you can design your underwriting policies to work in either way, and it could help account for that. And then obviously the industry you're in or the type of customers you're working with may you know, push you in one direction depending on what's most important to you. Interesting. Okay. So I think we, I think our audience now has a really good idea of what you do, which I think is great. So let's dive into the details a little bit. So there's kind of three different areas you mentioned. Um, let's start with data capture. Um, I know you've already given us a lot of really helpful information about how that works. So let me kind of rephrase this question a bit. So when we think about data capture, you know, even 25, you know, data points is you know, like, that's still a good, that's a really big form, right? So how exactly does this work? I'm assuming you have it like split up on a different screens. Is it a step-by-step -step process? Like give us a little more specifics of like how the data capture would work. And specifically, I'm interested in, you know, the difference in the experience between if I'm selling over the phone or I'm remote and I'm sending something to the merchant to do versus I have an iPad and I'm out in the field and I'm physically standing there with the merchant. So could you maybe talk to that a little bit? Yeah, uh, so we briefly touched on this in one of the previous points. I think the first step is um, just simplifying the number of questions, which yes. is resulting in time savings, right? So an average merchant processing application is 250 questions. And if you just email that to a merchant, other than their eyes kind of bulging and not knowing <laughs> what to fill out or what they're even responsible for, there's a lot of fine print and concerning language and things that add more pressure to this. Yeah. So the first step is we went through every app that existed. We built out um, a, a huge graph to kind of deduce the questions and we tried to come up with what we call root questions, right? So a, a really simple example of this is um, first data may want to know the date that your business opened yet maybe FIS wants to know how many months and years you've been in business, right? Two questions that ultimately can be answered from the same question, but could be a different input for these applications. So we tried to come up with what the core amount of root questions were that could ultimately respond to most processing applications. And that's what allowed us to get from 250 down to about 25 to 30 questions. 
Um, so then how do we go from 25 to 30 and get it down to even less than that or, or mm -hmm. even further less than that? Well, one of the main things is through our integrations. So for instance, instead of entering your account number and your routing number, you can instead log into your bank using Plaid and we can pull all of that. We can pull your banking data, your average transaction, your um, voided check and uh, history of statements. So there's different services that can help us to even further cut this down so that it's a better experience for the end user. And ultimately, over time, once a end user is a customer of under, we've securely stored their information and they will then be allowed to grant that access to someone else. So if the merchant has applied at TSIS and decides they want to apply somewhere else, they could repurpose that data similar to what you see with like a keeper security or a last pass or those types of password security processes. So that helps us to get to a place where really our vision is in the future where you're applying for something with a facial recognition or a thumbprint or something of that nature and you're not entering any data. We're not quite there yet, but that's ultimately where we think we can get. Um, and then to your other question about kind of the use case, everything to us kind of centralizes through the same process. So if you're on the phone, you're either pre-entering some of the data because you probably can collect a little bit of information from your customer and you're sending them a link that uh, only requires the things that you don't have for them to fill out. The process would actually be the same in person. Um, there's not multiple solutions. So you're still pointing a customer to a link that they can fill out on their phone or on your tablet. You just happen to be there with them uh, to possibly collect some more of that data. Interesting. Um, one of the just side notes here that, you know, as I've talked to different uh, payments executives about these processes, you know, one of the concerns that they always have, and, and I don't know if there's even, if there is even a solution to this other than honesty, but um, just curious your thoughts. I'm sure it's been, it's been brought up, but you know, when an agent's out in the field in person, they're using their own device, you know, how do you, how do you keep the agent from fraudulently like filling it out on their tablet in the car after the person says no, <laughs> or, you know what I mean? Like, you know, there's a little bit of a concern of like, oh, the agent's just going to like fill out multiple apps for different processors to get multiple upfront bonuses or kind of more of the fraud on like the agent side. I'm just, again, maybe that hasn't come up, but I'm just curious if you have any thoughts about that or if that's been a, a topic of conversation. No, it makes sense. I mean, I think the way we've designed it helps to reduce that as much as we can, right? So instead of agents filling out some form and then uploading it to DocuSign and then sending it for signature, everything is still designed and developed within our platform. So when they're with the customer, they're essentially filling out the form that the customer would have been filling out had they emailed it to the customer. So at least all that comes into our right. system. Right. And then when a customer actually signs, right, we then flatten that, um, add a cryptographic hash to every page and embed their signature. And then at that point in time, that document can no longer be changed. Nothing would stop an agent from coming back and saying, oh, whoops, they said that they were moto, but they're really retail. So we've got to make this change here. Right. But then that would actually void their signature. So now they would have to get yet another mm. signature because otherwise you have no way of, right. of avoiding fraud, right? Mm. And and sure. it, it's an interesting question though, because today we always try to relate back to what's happening today. Well, technically nothing is stopping an agent or an ISO from taking the PDF, opening it up in Adobe Acrobat right. and editing it, right? Sure. So there's always ways around the yeah, process, but we try to limit it as best as we can. Yeah, no, I like that. I like that. Now, one other piece that we really didn't touch on that I'm curious about, uh, more for my my own curiosity from uh, our statement analysis company, but as far as pricing, 
talk about that a little bit because obviously, you know, the most confusing part about an application, at least in my opinion, um, is when it comes down to pricing. You know, you've got these companies that have, they built these merchant applications to support tiered pricing, flat rate, three tier, four tier, and six tier, mm-hmm. cash discounting, surcharging, you know, it's like, oh my word. And they've tried, they put that all into one application, you know. How are you? How have you dealt with that? Have you tried to? Have you been able to kind of, um, you know, pull any any kind of, uh, you know, trends or things out of that to make it a little simpler? Or how are you dealing with the pricing aspect? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, this is related to the same comment before, where these applications have become additive. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's interesting. Is when I started in the industry, I always assumed that there was some really smart PDF guru that has a you know bachelor of science degree in you know documentation that works at a processor that's created this legal form but that's just not true someone someday 40 years ago made a pdf and then and put all the inputs of yeah. what they needed and then a new product was created and a pricing form came out and a new terms and conditions happened and they just keep getting jammed into the same documents right. and they're not created as thoughtfully as you would think, right? So that's what adds to this complexity. So, and as you know, most of these, you know, varying pricing methods were really just a way to manipulate customers to charge them more and make more money off of things. Um, So at the end of the day, uh, we do think we make it a lot easier. If you think of a web form, right? So we've we've simplified pricing. So our customers can choose, first of all, what pricing you even wanna use. Even though First Data has Billback and all these complicated solutions, a lot of ISOs don't even use them. So maybe they only want to offer their agents to use tiered and interchange, by example, and then we'll populate the data where it wants. Maybe they do want to offer them all. We can do that as well. But again, the way that the the team is filling out the form, no one's ever filling out the PDF. You're filling out a web form. So you're in the pricing section. We can design it. We can move things around. We can limit things. And then at the end of the day, whatever the resulting value is, we know where that goes. So we just put that where it's supposed to be on the PDF. So it allows us to be really flexible. That's fantastic. Yeah, I love that. So basically, you've you've, you've kind of standardized the pricing, it sounds like, as well, to where it's more the idea of choose which kind of pricing template or, or pricing structure that you want. And then here are the fields that need to be filled out based on the pricing structure that you've chosen. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, that's right. And I mean, it's not to get too complicated on this call, but it's we call these default fields, which are just fields that are right. usually adjusted by the sales group, not by the merchant. Right. So um, one, they can design what level of complexity they even want to see to avoid mm-hmm. having issues. But most of our customers create templates. So they come in and they create yeah. a template for their retail customer. They save it. They create one for their online customer. They save it. Maybe they have a ISV who's an association with custom pricing. They save it. They start, they create five or 10 like starting point templates, and yeah. then they build all their applications off that template. So when you have a new customer who's retail, you start with the retail template. A lot of the boundaries are defined, and then you're just going in and maybe changing the interchange plus amount or something else. So you don't even have to go and like start from scratch with everything. Right. But they could, and then at least by starting from scratch, the process is still hopefully less complicated. Um, I mean, as much as we've dug into these apps, I I feel like I'm continuing to learn things. And I thought I was an expert after 20 years in payments, but you just find that there's a lot in there and it's not always clear. Yeah, I love it. It it is interesting. I was talking to um, uh, one of my employees uh, yesterday. Uh, She handles our 
kind of more advanced statement analysis stuff, you know, building out, you know, um, matching automation rules for categorization and all this stuff, you know, and I was talking about uh, recently, I spent like uh, three days in a hotel room in, in my local area, just so that I could build out this big automation that I needed, you know, and I needed to like get away and, and focus on this. Well, you know, I thought there's nothing I'm going to see on a statement that I haven't already seen. I mean, I've literally seen like, I don't know, 10,000 statements. I mean, you know, come on, like I know everything, <laughs> you know, <Right. laughs> and it was unbelievable how many times I found myself online Googling and like, what is that? And trying to figure it out. And, you know, it might take me a 30 minutes and I'm thinking, good night, if it's taken me this long, I've been in the industry right. all this time and I've seen all these statements, you know? So I, it's, an, it's amazing the amount of complication that has intentionally or otherwise that's been created in our industry. So I think it's exciting yeah. that companies are starting to like, let's see if we can eliminate some of that uh, or at least uh, the perception of it, you know? Uh, so that's exciting. So I don't really, the other two I was going to go through, we've already gone through, you know, to clarify, I mean, Obviously, as you mentioned before, ISOs do need to have PDF documents on file. The underwriting department wants to have a signed, you know, a digitally signed PDF document. And I think what you said was, yes, you create those and you can send those along with your API through the integration so that everybody that needs a copy can get a copy. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And we've had to get these processes approved by Fiserv and FIS oh, and sure. Global and all sure. of the above. So it's uh, it's been a thorough process to make sure that the way in which this is done abides by their compliance policies demonstrates and presents things to the customer at the time they need to see it, gives them access to the physical documents and the terms and conditions. So that's all there. Uh, and it, most of our customers use that. But we also work with payment facilitators or different banks who don't arguably need the documentation. So then, you know, that's uh, ultimately over time, we feel like that will become less relevant, right? It'll be more of a digital copy and, and right. imprint of what that is that's going to be more, more necessary. Sure. And then just to clarify the integration piece, and again, you just touched on it a second ago there, but you know, the idea is for those that maybe haven't caught on to this yet, um, if an ISO came to you and said, hey, we want to use you for our you know, online um, application as well as in person, so we want to really streamline our onboarding process here and, and make it as fast and, and simple as possible, um, you know, if, if they're selling with FIS or Fiserv or TSIS or whoever, you know, most of the big companies now, if you don't already have it, you're working on it, but you have integrations directly to their underwriting department so that when an application is completed, it instantly goes to the underwriting department, eliminating any delays that might currently exist where they're data entering it or whatever they're doing currently to get it into the underwriting department. Is that is that accurate? Yep, that's accurate. And you know, the one thing to be said is not all integrations are created equal. <laughs> um, we found some really interesting things with the way the processors have done their integrations, but at least most of them do have a way to get the data. So that's absolutely right. Um, what we're really excited about as we finish up the processors is starting to get into different solutions that can further enhance the business, right? Because it's not just processing. You have a customer apply yeah. for merchant processing. What do you typically need next? Well, you might need a gateway. So can we just right. automate building that gateway instead of having to log into NMI or somewhere else to go do that? That's actually quite simple in comparison to the processor. Yes. What if you want to give that customer a loan? Can we create your own square cash? That's actually quite easy if you just do an integration into a Lendio or a service like that. So we think it'll allow them to expand into different services that'll make this much more agnostic uh, across different industries. Yeah, I love that. I was going to bring that up, actually, because yeah. you had mentioned it earlier. I'm glad you brought that up again, because, you know, I think it's really important for our audience to understand that. I mean, this under is not like about merchant applications and streamlining them. That's one of the things that you do. But the idea is really more, correct me if I'm wrong here, it's that, hey, now we have that merchant's data and, you know, they've they've already become, an, you know, uh, a part of this kind of ecosystem. So now when you want to sell them extra services, and a lot of it too could even be things like, um, you know, terminals and 
Uh, some companies still doing, you know, leases on larger point of sale systems or whatever it is. But the idea, I think the vision you had is, is kind of long-term uh, automating a lot of that. So I, you know, I'm, I really love what you guys are doing. I think that's, uh, that's definitely something that's needed in the industry. Are you getting ISOs already that are, that are doing that, that are starting to branch out a little bit and use that different was my services? Question. Yeah. 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 Yeah, we are. Um, and as I mentioned this before, I mean, we're still a relatively young company yeah. since I'm not that many years away from, from my last business. So we're kind of at the mercy of our engineering team's effort to get these integrations in. But I, I think that's <laughs> sure. what, what we're most excited about and what our, our customers are actually most excited about as well. Right. It's not just, you know, how can I speed up the process of getting an application and how can I fundamentally change my business to have a better comprehensive solution, create a world-class onboarding experience and become more of a dynamic financial services company, not just being pigeonholed into merchant services. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think I can speak for a lot of the ISO owners that I know that might be listening when they would right now be saying, where have you been all my life? <laughs> so, <laughs> right. As they're trying to get their uh, online applications done and they've compromised again and again. And so uh, I think your service is definitely one that's needed. So, um, you know, for those in our audience who want to learn more and they want to find out how they could uh, work with you, where would you send them to learn more? Yeah, just our website is probably the best first start. Um, the name of our company, again, is under U-N-D-E-R. Uh, the website's uh, under.io. Awesome. So they go there and I'm assuming you got some kind of a contact us or partner link or something like that they could go to, right? Yeah. Yes, for sure. They can learn a little bit more and uh, submit some info and talk to our team. We can go through some demos and go from there. Yeah, I was on your website earlier before this. It, it's, it's, it's pretty clear that it's just for ISOs and yeah. immediately you, you can click a button and get more information. Awesome. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for taking the time today. Uh, Really insightful information. Uh, I know our industry is excited to see uh, how it goes and uh, start taking advantage of these efficiencies that you're going to bring to the industry. Yeah, good luck. Yeah, thank you both. Appreciate the time. So, Patty, one of the things I love about our sponsor, Accept Blue, is that their gateway really has this focus on ACH. I know that's something you're passionate about. That's something I'm passionate about, yes. And, you know, and the whole idea of ACH payments, you know, we talk about B2B a lot and about how B2B has been dominated for years by checks. Well, the ACH is nothing more than electronic check. It clears a lot faster. You know, it's there's no right. float per se. And, you know, I've, I've looked at ACH a lot and wondered for years why more merchant services providers were not offering ACH. And I think it's basically because there haven't been solutions out there. Yeah, the technology just hasn't been there to make a big push for it. Right, right. But I, but I think Accept.Blue really, you know, really comes to the table with something that's going to make a difference. Yeah, and then really taking it to another level, of course, is this idea of kind of the non-cash adjustment type program where they're bringing mm-hmm. that to Card Not Present with ACH and saying, hey, right. the ACH option, you can have no fee on ACH. Exactly. And right. so now all of a sudden that's kind of the cash equivalent. So those that are selling cash discounting, if you want to go to maybe contractors or other Card Not Present merchants and sell something similar, Go to accept.blue and you can talk to them about how you could set that up and structure it so that you could have your non-cash adjustment type of fee on the card transactions, but then not have it on the ACH. So um, I love it. I think it's pretty cool. So again, just go to the website. There's no .com or .net or anything. It's just accept.blue. Go check it out. This is Questions from the Field, brought to you by ccsalespro.com, the leader in merchant sales training and technology. If you're an individual merchant sales professional, visit ccsalespro.com forward slash training to get a free 14-day trial of our all-access pass.
If you manage a team of merchant sales professionals, visit ccsalespro.com forward slash ISO to learn how we can help you grow. And now, here is Questions from the Field with James Shepard. So, Patty, today I just have a really quick uh, questions from the field. Um, I just want to encourage people to, you know, sales individuals to audit their uh, sales process to ensure that they are getting interaction and conversation from the merchant initially. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this sounds really obvious, but, you know, as I think about my own training content and I say, you know, what, what, you know, if you watched all my videos, you know, what would you not get from my videos? What would be really important that you would miss? Well, right. what you would miss is what the merchant says. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the conversation. And when I go out with top salespeople, when I'm making sales, you know, what I'm seeing is there's this whole thing that happens prior to the opening pitch. And right. it's something that it's hard to explain in a training context, but it's the idea of getting that merchant to open up, getting them to talk. And so I thought I would just give two really quick tips today that might help. Um, my number one tip here is learn to love sincere silence. Um, yes. Learn to love sincere silence, um, not silence because you don't know what you're talking about or awkward right. silence, but sincere silence. So, you know, a sincere silence is just walking into a merchant and, and when you walk up to them, understanding that, you know, you're probably not going to lose the sale by something you didn't say. Right. You're going to lose the sale because of something that you said. So mm-hmm. choose your words carefully mm-hmm. and don't use too many, right. you know, just saying, hey, how's it going today? That's a good start. You know, right. you don't have to say, hi, my name is James Shepard. I'm here to talk to you about your payment processing needs. Did you know that you could eliminate your payment processing? You know, it's like, whew, slow down. <laughs> no, easy right? killer. I so, mean, it's all about contemplation, isn't it? I it mean, is. you know, when you when you enter an, a relationship and you're, you know, getting to know people there, right. you know, there's a pause for contemplation. Hi, I'm Patty Murphy. Right. Oh, Patty Murphy. Yeah. Okay. You know, you think there's a thinking right. process, right? There is. There is. Yeah. And so, you know, using that sincere silence, right, you know, whether it's right off the bat or when they say something and a lot of agents, uh, you know, salespeople I talk with, it's like, I can tell when they're on the phone or in, in front of a merchant, they're very mm-hmm. nervous about what they're going to say next. Um, right. Did you know that actually the best thing that you can do is to actually skip a beat after the merchant finishes what they said and skip a beat as you figure out what you want to say? Right. That actually doesn't make you a bad salesperson. That makes you seem sincere. You know, right. I honestly never have to think about what I'm going to say anymore to anybody. You know, it's like when I'm, when I'm in a sales environment, I've, anything I'm selling, I've been selling it for a long time. I know how to sell it. So, right. but you know what? I pause anyway, just because I want them to think that I don't know what I'm going to say next. Mm-hmm. Because if they think I know exactly what I'm going to say next, I'm just another salesperson. So right. when they say something to me, I'll, I'll pause and, you know, look, I'll get a sincere look on my face and say, Wow, that's a that's a really good point. Um, let me think about that a second. Here's what I would say, and then I go to my line that mm-hmm. I could have said instantly because I knew what I was right. going to say, but sure. I pause on purpose. It's intentional. So learn mm-hmm. to love sincere silence. And then number two, learn to mirror your prospect. Um, yes, you talk this, about that a lot when when you talk about it, when you're doing your sales yes. training. I've noticed right yes. that whole idea. Yeah. Lately, it's taken on new meaning, uh, primarily because of Chris Voss, who I mentioned on a couple of previous episodes. I love his negotiating uh, tactics mm-hmm. and things for a sales context. Um, but, you know, I'll talk about both of them. So in general, mirroring simply, you know, means that you have an understanding that people generally like other people that are like them. Right. And so 
one of the reasons that you need to get the prospect talking initially is because you need a little context about mm-hmm. who they are, who they and, are. you know, right. how do they talk and what are their, their, uh, you know, what's their mode of, of operation? You know, how are they saying things and their tone and the speed and all of that. And, you know, you're trying to mirror their personality a bit. And this is one of those things that's difficult to learn because the first 50 times you do it, you're probably going to feel a little mechanical Awkward. and you're going to yeah. feel a little, a little bit um, like you're not true to who you're yourself, mm-hmm. you know, when you do it the mm-hmm. first few times, but think right. of it like an actor, you know, um, right. you know, an actor is playing a part and that doesn't mean, mean that they're being dishonest. No. They're intentional and sincere and they're playing a part and great actors are almost indistinguishable from their, the character that they're playing. Right. Um, and it's the same way with great salespeople. When you're talking to someone who talks slower, you're talking slower, uh, different hand gestures and, and figuring out how dominant you're trying to be versus, you know, the other way. So there's a lot of that that goes into it. Um, the other kind of mirroring is again, from Chris Voss, the, the idea of actually mirroring, which is uh, mirroring the language, which is repeating the last one to three words that someone says in the form of a question, which mm-hmm. gets them to open up. And so when someone said, you know, you say, how's it going today? Well, I'm just trying to get this inventory order done. Inventory order? Yeah, yeah, we got an inventory order in today and we're trying to get them all on the shelves, but you know, one of my employees is out sick. It's been a crazy day. An employee's out sick. Yeah, you know, it's this COVID and they get and what you're doing is you're just repeating those last one to three words, mirroring them back to the the prospect. And it's just it's creating conversation. People cannot help but give you more information. You mm-hmm. can use it in a casual context. You can also use it when you're trying to get information about their payment processing needs and saying, you know, what's your experience been with payment processors so far in your business? Oh, we've had all kinds of problems. Problems? Yeah, the last one, da, 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 you know, right. and, oh, they, they didn't call you back. No, they didn't call us back. And then, and so you can just mirror, mirror, mirror and get as much information as you need. So, you know, that's really important, but it's also important to mirror in terms of the other aspects as well. Uh, you know, when it makes sense, of course, you're not trying to be an automatron or something and right. exactly replicate someone, have, but you know, make you an adjustment. Use your own brain to figure out, yes. okay, this is the situation where I do this, you know? Yeah. And that's what all, that's what good sales is all about. So right. take those tips, audit your sales process, ask yourself, number one, um, am I getting the prospect to talk? You know, are, right. are they saying things before I'm saying things before I'm figuring out what I'm going to say? Are they saying something? Mm-hmm. Do I seem sincere in my response, you know, uh, or right. does it sound canned? Does it seem pre-prepared, you know? Um, right. And then number two, are you making an effort to mirror the prospect in ways that make sense for you? Staying true to who you are, but mm-hmm. making slight adjustments with maybe the tone and speed that you're speaking, um, your gestures and, and things of that nature to right. mirror the prospect and to set yourself up really to have the best interaction possible and really just help them to have a great day. So hopefully those tips will help you. I hope you have a fantastic rest of your week. Thanks, Jane. This is the Insider's Report with Patty Murphy, brought to you by The Green Sheet. For nearly 40 years, The Green Sheet has been the go-to source for news, analysis, and educational tools that empower and connect payments professionals. If you're not reading The Green Sheet already, check it out on the web today at www.greensheet.com. Well, I've been researching, James, uh, the crypto payments market for an article I'm preparing for The Green Sheet. Okay. So I want to share some of what I've learned this week. Um, first of all, a study by Site Research for the digital payments company Cantaloupe. Very strange name if you ask me for a payments company. Um, <laughs> it was it was formerly USA Technologies, which I'm sure a lot of people you know know about. They do like the um, vending machines and things oh, like yeah, that. Oh yeah, sure. Card sure. acceptance for that. Anyway, that survey revealed that two thirds of consumers who own cryptocurrencies 
would consider using them for purchases if their crypto assets were stored in a mobile wallet. Nearly one in five, 19%, would pay with crypto from a mobile wallet if it were easy to do so. Now, Visa's research provides an even more optimistic outlook for crypto payments. It says 81% of crypto owners, according to its research, are interested in making payments with crypto-linked cards. Now, to put this in perspective, according to the Pew Research Center, about one in six or 16% of adult Americans own or have owned cryptocurrencies. So basically what Visa is saying is 80% of 16%, which is what, uh, 12% or something like that. Mm -hmm. So 12% of adults, but still that's a, you know, it's a a tidy number. Right. Now, so far, most crypto payment activity has been with online merchants like Microsoft and Overstock, Mm -hmm. but major brick and mortar merchants are getting, getting into the game. Um, Home Depot and Starbucks are two that I've come across. Visa MasterCard cards that are linked to crypto accounts have been around for about a year or two. And most are linked to debit cards. Right. For example, there's a MasterCard debit card and app issued by the crypto wallet giant BitPay. Now, Visa says that more than a billion dollars was spent using crypto linked Visa cards in the first half of 2021. By early November, that total had grown to $3.5 billion, according to the website uh, TechCrunch. And most crypto activity to date has been in the Asia-Pacific region, but I think these are going to start popping up in U.S. checkouts as soon as well. In fact, uh, BitPay has a partnership with Verifone, um, which will will soon um, allow Verifone to support cryptocurrency acceptance at merchant terminals and for e-commerce in-app payments. The solution requires um, Verifone's Engage, a device or an Android device connected to Verifone cloud services. At the checkout, the consumer selects their preferred crypto wallet on the POS device. Then they scan an on-screen QR code using the wallet to complete the transaction. The cryptocurrency then gets directed immediately to BitPay, and once accepted, the merchant gets an approval message. The time lag is akin to a credit card authorization. Yeah. Uh, at least that's what Visa, uh, Verifone execs have told me. Now, BitPay then immediately converts the crypto to dollars and funds get settled to the merchant account, just like a card transaction, typically on a next day basis. Um, you know, Verifone and BitPay, of course, manage all the volatility through this instantaneous conversion process, um, which is a big advance from previous iterations of crypto payments. The whole thing is, is, a, is, is an uh, improvement because those previous iterations required consumers to actually convert their crypto assets to dollars or yens or, or euros before they could actually spend the assets. As I uncovered these these facts, you know, I kind of thought back to the early days of mobile and contactless payments, James. You know, these languished for years until the pandemic created more de- demand for right. less touch payment interactions. Right. You know, and crypto, I think, it is in a similar position. But crypto cards are not going to languish for years like mobile and and uh, contactless, you know, because cryptocurrency assets are burgeoning. I mean, there's a they have a market value as of year end 2021. They had a market value exceeding three trillion dollars right. up from one point three trillion in July of 2021. Um, while some of that money is for investment purposes, obviously. There's going to be demand from people to spend these assets too, 
you know, as the aforementioned survey suggests, mm -hmm. uh, the appeal to merchants, other than having another payment option, obviously, is uh, lower processing fees compared to interchange. But most importantly, perhaps, is the elimination of chargebacks. I mean, well, and I, I would argue that even more important than that is the perception to the younger demographic that you are a cool business. That you're a cool business. That's true. That's true. Yeah. You know, and I, so I, in, I interviewed a Visa, uh, Verifone exec, excuse me, who told me the firm is seeing interest across the board in terms of merchants, you know, QSRs, big box stores, general retailers, even restaurants. Now, you know, all of this is to say, you know, we're still in the early days of crypto payments at the point of sale. But make most, no mistake, they're, they're coming, they're here, really, and they're poised for growth. Yeah, I love it. It's a, a topic that we're going to be talking a lot more about in 2022. It's something I'm really passionate about. I've done a ton of research, and rather than yeah. share all of that now, I love what you've uh, provided. I think it's it's uh, it's a very interesting time for crypto. Um, mm -hmm. I think, you know, regardless of your opinion about crypto, I've never made a crypto purchase. I don't plan to make a crypto purchase this year. Same here. But, right? <laughs> but regardless of your personal beliefs about it, the idea that a business should accept crypto, um, that is becoming much more interesting uh, mm -hmm. for our industry. And we'll be talking a lot about that in 2022 for sure. So mm -hmm. thanks for sharing that, Patty. Sure. Thank you for listening to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Whether you are an industry veteran, processing executive, or just trying to learn about the payment space, we appreciate your time. The Merchant Sales Podcast is a joint production of Greensheet.com and CCSalesPro.com, and we hope you will tune in next week for more information and tips on building your merchant services business.